I'd like us first to just consider two young people getting married. Let's just say they're 20 and 21 and they're still in college and uh, they finish college together. Then the husband gets a job and so he can help his wife uh, get her doctorate. Life is really busy for this couple through their 20s. By the time they're 30 and 31, they've settled down, they've bought a house, they have a couple small children. And life looks very different than it did 10 years ago when they first started their marriage journey together. They're not even the same people they were back then. They have less in common. They don't really fight with each other, but they don't necessarily have anything in common that they like to do together. In fact, they've developed different groups of friends and different hobbies. One day, the husband tells his wife that they need to talk. He tells her that he's met someone else. He tells her that he loves her and that he always will and there's nothing wrong with their life together. It's just that he's met someone else who he connects with on a deep level. And then she says, oh good, me too. She agrees that they've had this wonderful life together but she feels like it's missing passion. And that she too has met someone else who makes her feel like she's never felt before. In fact, he makes her feel like she always thought another person should make someone feel. What are they supposed to do? If this was a Christian couple in the church, what advice would we give to them? If we sat down with this couple and showed them in scripture where Jesus says that what God has joined together, let no man separate. And even if they got a divorce, we would show them where Jesus says that they would be committing adultery if they remarried. What would they think of us? Would God really want these two people to stay married to each other when the life they always wanted is is right there in front of them for both of them to grab? What's really wrong with meeting someone who is attractive and imagining what life could be like with that person? Even imagining intimate moments together with that person. If you're a man and you find yourself attracted to other men, imagining what an intimate life could be like with them, what's really wrong with that? Especially if, from what you can tell, that's just the way you are, naturally. How can we tell any of these people to deny something so powerful about who they are? But this is exactly what Jesus does in our passage today. If you'd open up with me to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 27 through 30. That's found on page number 1502 of the Pew Bible. Again, that's Matthew 
chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus continues in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. So Jesus says that to even look at another person with this kind of desire in our heart is adultery. And then he also says that adultery is the path to hell. And then after establishing that adultery is the path to hell, he tells us that the marriage covenant can only be broken by adultery. And for most of the last 2,000 years, what Jesus says here has been considered very plain and very uncontroversial. It's only now in our modern Western context that we have begun to doubt Jesus' words here. So the question really is, who do we believe? Do we believe our culture and do we trust ourselves? Or do we believe Jesus? So first, this morning, we're going to look at the clarity of Christ's teaching. Next, we're going to look at the consequence of Christ's teaching. So what does it mean for us? And finally, the center of Christ's teaching. So Jesus is saying here that any time we entertain a sinful sexual thought or feeling, we are guilty of adultery. Just like last week when we saw that anger in the heart is murder, so Jesus is teaching here that any lust in the heart is adultery. And our passage opens with Jesus contrasting what has been said in the past about the seventh commandment, forbidding adultery, with his teaching on it. And so he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And in our society today, adultery is narrowly defined as intercourse with somebody who is not your spouse. That's actually how it was defined in Jesus' time as well. But Jesus says, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery adultery with her in his heart. Notice the problem is not looking at women. The problem is looking lustfully. Which begs the question, what does it mean to look at someone lustfully? 
A literal translation of the Greek here is anyone who looks at a woman with epithumia has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And epithumia is a very interesting word because it's found throughout the New Testament and it's typically always translated with the word desire. And if we study this word in Romans 13, we see this. Paul says, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires or the epithumia of the flesh. But in Philippians chapter 1, Paul also uses this word when he's talking about how he wants to go to heaven and be with God. But he also wants to stay here on earth and minister to the Philippians. And he says this, he says, I desire or I epithumia to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. You see, desire in and of itself is not the problem. It is good for Paul to desire to depart from this world and to go and be with Christ. I hope every single one of us desires to go and be with Christ. It was a good desire also to stay and minister to the Philippians. You see, the problem is the desires of our flesh. The desires that come out of our indwelling sin, those are the desires that destroy us. We see both uses of this word in play in Galatians 5.17, where Paul says this. He says, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. Why? (laughs) To keep you from doing the things that you want to do. According to the scriptures, our biggest problem in this life is our own desire. Doing what we want to do. Doing what feels right to us. According to the scriptures, our biggest problem in this life is that we want to live out the desires that we were born with. The desires we were born with are the very desires that Jesus Christ has come to save us from. He gives us his spirit so that we can actually battle those desires. So through the power of his spirit, we can can not do the things that we want to do. James says this, He says, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire or epithumia and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. The very definition of temptation is the experience of our natural fleshly desires that we were born with dragging us away and enticing us to live them out. And so the question is this, well, who gets to define what is an evil desire and what is a good desire? And we basically have two options. We can listen to what makes sense to us and our culture and how they would define a good desire versus an evil desire, or we can listen to Jesus. And hell is in the balance with how we answer that question. So Jesus says, if anyone looks at a woman lustfully or out of his own evil desire, he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
And so Jesus means that anytime we entertain a desire for something of an illicit nature that is contrary to what God has said in his word, we are committing adultery. Now, some might argue that Jesus is only warning married people about lust inside their heart. And technically, it's true. That is the specific example that Jesus is using here. But if Jesus is warning us to guard our hearts in one instance where we're tempted to live outside of God's design for how to use our sexuality, the principle clearly applies to every opportunity that we have to live outside of God's will for us in this area. And if we're trying to limit Jesus' words here to only certain sins committed by certain people, we've missed the point and we're doing the exact same thing that the Pharisees were doing. By trying to figure out where within the words of the law they could wiggle out of it and do what they wanted to do anyway. Jesus is saying anytime we indulge a desire to express our sexuality outside of a marriage relationship between one man and one woman, we are being dragged away by our own evil desire and we are breaking the seventh commandment. Now, the primary way that Jesus' audience would have tried to get out from underneath what Jesus is saying here is by saying, okay, well, I'll avoid adultery by divorcing this woman that I no longer like and marrying the woman that I do. And that's because Deuteronomy 24, Moses permitted divorce. He gave the Israelites rules for how to protect women who would be most vulnerable if a man decided to divorce her. And over time, the religious leaders had interpreted what Moses said so that a man was free to divorce his wife if she even burnt his food. But Moses was not giving instructions for how to divorce your wife if you want to. Moses was telling them what to do in the sad case of a divorce. And so for all those who misunderstood Moses and for those who thought they might have found the loophole around Jesus' teaching— about adultery, Jesus goes on to say this. He says, It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. You see, they thought all they had to do to be righteous in a divorce is to give their former spouse a certificate of divorce so that she could prove she was divorced and so that she could get remarried. But Jesus comes along and says that the only thing that can break a marriage covenant is adultery. Now, the New International Version here um, adds a word to this passage. And they take what is actually very clear and they make it unnecessarily confusing. So a literal translation of the Greek here would be this. Anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And the translators are right in wanting to highlight that she's a victim, but they removed what she is a victim of in order to do that. She is a victim in the sense 
that she will have to get remarried to survive in that culture. And when she does, because the marriage bond can only be broken by adultery, she will have to commit adultery herself in order to get remarried. And whoever she marries will have to commit adultery to marry her. So Jesus is saying that unless the marriage bond has already been broken by sexual immorality, you will be forcing your wife to commit adultery and you will be committing adultery when you remarry. So Jesus closes the loophole. Now, there are many debates among biblical scholars about what constitutes a biblical divorce and remarriage, and we are going to save that for Matthew chapter 19 when we get there. I just want to highlight what Jesus' point is by bringing it up here in this passage. Jesus is making it clear that every single person has committed adultery. Whether we're single, whether we're married, whether we're divorced, whether we're remarried, everyone, except for probably the children, is guilty of adultery. That's what Jesus' point here is. And now I can imagine someone saying, well, I've never thought about having an encounter like that with anyone other than my spouse. And to that I would ask, well, have you ever had an evil desire for someone other than your spouse? Have you ever looked at the way another man cares for his wife and thought, if only I married somebody like that? Jesus doesn't say the evil desires here must include undressing someone in our mind. And we all want to wiggle out of this. We all want to wiggle out of what Jesus is saying here because we don't like thinking of ourselves that way or because we want to justify our own particular evil desire and say, no, this is not the one that Jesus is forbidding. But if we're going to receive the grace that Jesus is offering every one of us in this passage, we must first stand under the law that Jesus is bringing down on us all. Now, that it's clear that we have all committed adultery, what is the consequence of this teaching? It's pretty simple. None of us has enough righteousness in this area to save ourselves. And if there is even a hint of immorality in our lives, we must go to whatever length necessary to be rid of it. Jesus goes on, he says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. In Jesus' culture, the right hand and the right eye were considered the, uh, the best and most useful hands and eyes. They were, the, they were the ones that you would least want to do without. But Jesus says it's worth it to even lose your eye and your hand if that's what it takes to be holy. Now, he's not meant to be taken literally here. He's not not encouraging anyone to go and maim themselves. Because, as Jesus just pointed out, the problem is not with our eyes or our hands. The, The problem is with the evil desires inside our hearts. But if our eyes and our hands are feeding those evil desires then it's better to get rid of whatever is feeding those desires. He's saying we should get rid of anything in our life that makes the battle between the flesh and the battle between the spirit more difficult. 
That means confessing our sin and getting rid of our reputation if we need to. That means getting rid of our laptop or our cell phone. It might even mean moving on from friends or even a job. It means a radical break with anything that inflames these desires. It means making church the number one priority in our lives because on our own, we are simply too weak. I think sometimes people see other people who are highly involved in church and they think, oh, look, that person's really pious. No, no, they're weak and they know it. They're weak and they know it. We've got to do everything we can do to fill our minds and hearts with whatever is true and honorable and lovely and just. But it also means facing the reality of what happens to someone who will not humble themselves and gouge out their eye and cut off their hand. Jesus says that if we choose sexual sin over Christ, that is the road to hell. In Ephesians 5, Paul says this, But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. For of this you can be sure no immoral person, sorry, no immoral, impure or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Friends, we live in a culture that is deceiving us with empty words. We live in a culture where choices are being made about what to do with our minds and our bodies based on the fact that we cannot imagine going through the experience of denying ourselves the desires boiling up inside us. And they are powerful desires. They are desires that many of us did not choose and do not want, and they are enticing and intoxicating. And to deny ourselves our desires feels like death. To ask somebody else to deny themselves their desires feels like you're killing them, especially if it's desires that we haven't denied in our life, especially if if it's a same-sex desire, that there's no godly way of satisfying But our culture has turned Christianity on its head with deceiving, empty words. Our culture says, you do not have to deny who you are. But Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Our culture says, You can discover who you are inside your own heart, and then you must follow your heart. But God's word says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? At the beginning of this sermon, I made up a story about a couple who was considering a divorce And I asked what is wrong with imagining life, even an intimate life with another person. And Jesus' answer to that question is, it's adultery. And living an adulterous life 
is the road to hell. But is that the center of Jesus' teaching here? Or does Jesus have another purpose in mind? Takes us to our final point. I have to confess that as a pastor, um, this is a very difficult topic to teach on. I probably spent more hours on this sermon, twice as much, actually, as last week's. And the reason is, is because it's very difficult to consider who will be hearing this message this morning. With a topic as sensitive as adultery and divorce, there will be some here this morning who are actively involved in regular pornography use. There will be some who are engaging in sexual activity outside of marriage or who are at least very powerfully tempted in that direction. There are some in this room who very well could be married and believe and are tempted to believe at least that life could be better if they weren't. And this is a passage that is primarily aimed at two kinds of people. There's the person who is trying to justify holding on to even the smallest amount of immorality in their life, or there's the religious person who is self-righteous because they've never committed physical adultery. And so Jesus is giving us the law here. He wants us all to know that we're guilty of this sin and we must turn to him in repentance and faith because continuing to live in this sin leads to hell. But there's another group here this morning who agree with everything Jesus is saying here. And you are broken about your sin. And the consequences of that sin still haunt you. And maybe you're remarried and you can't read a passage like this without wondering if your remarriage was adultery in Jesus' eyes. You've repented of your sins. You've turned to Christ for grace and forgiveness. You've humbled yourself and done whatever it took by God's grace to walk away from those sins. And now you're limping along with him day in and day out, struggling to continue to receive his grace because of the shame. And when you hear the loud thunder of the law in this passage this morning, it causes you to wince. And so to you this morning, Jesus promises this. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You see, we've all been unfaithful. But he is not like us. He is faithful. If he promises to forgive our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness, he will, he has. Listen to these words from the Apostle Paul from the blessing at the end of 1 Thessalonians. Paul says, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful. He will do it. Notice God is the one who sanctifies us. He's the one who makes us holy. And he keeps us whole spirit, soul, and body blameless. Because he is faithful and he will do it. Or these words from 2 Timothy. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. 
See, we are so united to him that even if we are faithless, even if we cannot hold on to the reality of his grace and his mercy to weak and weary, repentant sinners just like us, even if our faith is slipping through our fingers under the weight of sorrow, guilt, and regret, he is faithful because we belong to him. So no matter what our story is this morning, whether it's a story of active sin that we must walk away from, or it's a story of pain and heartache from past sins that we have walked away from. Jesus is offering us himself this morning because he is the center of this passage. Paul says this, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Jesus is our only hope. His righteousness is the only righteousness we can ever have. We must be found in him because we've got nothing left to hide in. We need his robes of righteousness because ours are filthy rags. Jesus is the place of forgiveness and grace for every sinner. And Jesus is the place of comfort and refuge for every sufferer. And whatever we considered valuable, whether it's our reputation, our self-image, pleasures, or comforts, or fantasies, or worldly desires we feel like we must have, all of that is garbage compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus. You see, Jesus knows that we've all committed adultery. And in the Old Testament, the punishment for adultery was death. And Jesus is saying, you are all adulterers and you all deserve to die. But he died so that we could live. Imagine a firefighter going into a burning house. He goes into the master bedroom and he finds a child standing next to his mom and dad's bed. Everything in this child is telling him that he will be safe if he can only find his parents because his parents are the center of his world. He doesn't know this strange man standing in front of him with a big scary coat and a big scary mask. And the truth is, to some degree, we're all like that child. Jesus is standing here this morning asking us to trust him. For some, that's to trust him to walk away from our sin because the smoke and the flames. And for others, it's to trust him that he has really forgiven all our sin. And that it is as far as the east is from the west. But Jesus is not a big, scary firefighter in a faceless suit. He is the sinless son of God. And he knows what it's like to suffer the torment of temptation. He was in the garden of Gethsemane and he desired with great desire for there to be another way to save his people from their sins. And unlike our desires, his was a good desire, but it was not the will of God. And so with blood and sweat streaming down his face, Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. And this is why the writer of the Hebrew tells, Hebrews tells us that Jesus knows the experience of suffering temptation. He says, because he himself suffered when tempted, 
he is able to help those who are being tempted. See, Jesus, more than anyone in this world, knows what it's like to pick up his cross and to go to his death. And so when he's asking us to do the same and to put to death our desires of our flesh, he's not asking us to do anything that he has not done and that he is not promising to be with, a, with us in as we do the same. He knows our weakness and our shame, yet he was willing to die in our place. And in dying for us, he shows us both the justice of God that must be satisfied, our sin really is that bad, and he shows us the love of God and that he was willing to satisfy the demands of justice himself to save us from the power and the penalty of sin. And so through faith in his death and resurrection, all our adultery is forgiven. This means every lustful thought is forgiven. This means every divorce is forgiven. This means his mercy and grace abound in your remarriage. He is good. And his law is good. Sometimes the knife has to cut deep so the medicine can get in. And that's what the law is meant to do. But when we turn to him and we receive his grace and his mercy and his kindness, we have all that we need for this life. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we confess that this is a difficult topic, especially in our culture. So we pray, Father, that you would comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.